0: Hello, I'm Helen Small, I teach English, I'm a professor of English in Pembroke College and in the Faculty of English at Oxford. The book I've just finished is about the ways in which we have conventionally argued for the value of the humanities. So it's unlike, I guess, most of the work in the field because it isn't aiming to be a polemic or a manifesto in the first instance, it's actually addressed to people who find themselves needing to make the arguments. And what I wanted to do was what we actually do in the classroom, what we do in our books all the time, but we often feel too defensive to do when we think about this subject. And that is, ask ourselves the hard questions, figure out what the main arguments are, put them through their paces, give them a hard time and see what's left standing at the end.
1: A lot of academics are content to study their subjects in an arts for arts sake environment. What made you become such an advocate for the course?
0: I became really interested in the humanities debate and wanted to see what I could do with it around 2010, so I'd just finished the previous book. I was thinking about what my next subject should be, and of course this was the time when students were taking to the streets, especially in December of that year, as they looked at the sudden hike in the funding of an undergraduate education from £3,000, as you know, to up to £9,000 for most of them. The students who were on the streets were often the best advocates for the subjects they wanted to study. A lot of them came from the humanities, but of course not just them, also social scientists and scientists out there. And they were often pretty clear about what they were doing. But it seemed to me that those of us who were speaking from the university and worrying about the pressure that might be placed on the humanities, especially to become more demonstratively useful to society or produce results that could be tied to improvements in GDP and that kind of blunt economistic thinking we're often becoming too defensive and we're delivering arguments that seem to me bigger than we could sustain so you will see that I have a particular beef I guess with the democracy needs this argument when it's put very very boldly like that okay so as I listen to the arguments I wanted to really just test them out to to try to figure out what what is the basic claim here, where does it come from, what does it assume the antagonism might be, what are we arguing to defend ourselves from, what are the assumptions about what we study and what the skills and the strengths of it are historically and what they are now, which arguments have we used in the past that we might need to change because what we do now is substantially different from what was done in, say, the high Victorian period when a lot of these arguments were formed. So it seemed to me time to update the arguments not just in the mode of polemic but as a kind of critical exercise in its own right.
1: It's quite hard to make such, as you say, academic arguments available to the yeah. public. Is that part of what you do? Yes, it is.
0: But I did want people to delve deeper. So so <laughs> my, my ideal audience is, is, if you like, a mixed audience of, if you're being really ambitious, it's the people in White hall, isn't it, who are making policy decisions and you want them to access... The, you know, the, the core claims that are being made, think about them critically, and then go away with something they can use. But I'm also writing a course, as I said, for people like me, so people who are immersed in teaching some of this material on a regular basis as part of our Victorian or 20th century classes and who want to get into the depth of it historically and in terms of rhetoric and all the other things that are there to be studied. I think the other thing that you're raising though is, is the, the huge difficulty implicitly of arguing for the humanities because you're arguing for something that is so broad. So how do you defend something that runs the gamut really from sort of Sufi high mysticism through to middle German or you know theories of music, uh, you name it. It's the, the boundaries shift on what we include within the humanities and there's uh, quite a lot of trading going on across the boundary with the social sciences most obviously but arguing at that level of generality means that you have to get above you, get, you have to get at a higher level of abstraction really than you can use when you're arguing for, for example what English does in the way of training you to be sceptical about rhetoric those claims are, are easier to nail, in, more specific but trying to find what works across the humanities involves not just abstraction but a certain amount of grouping of things that are, you know, that are common across them
1: and has that been your biggest struggle then getting to that level of abstraction? I guess so. It's why the very first
0: chapter in the book and the second lecture that you'll hear if you listen to the podcasts is not strictly evaluation, it's a description of the definitive work that the humanities can claim to do, so it's really about a basic way of justifying the humanities on the grounds that they do something that is distinct from the work of the social sciences and the sciences, and it's trying to figure out exactly what that work is, what is what is the subject we have in common, and what are the techniques that we have in common in going about our work, and the values that we have that are maybe partly distinctive to us.
1: How do the authors that you're looking at at the moment come into that?
0: Some of them have specific authors associated with them and some of them don't. So to start historically with the earliest one, the democracy argument has a very strong authority presence in Plato. So really you're dealing with Plato's argument that the philosopher is a catfly to the polis, someone who's teasing and goading it into a more active state of being. In the case of John Stuart Mill, I was intrigued by this. You have one extremely famous person in the history of philosophy who takes on and rearticulates the idea that the humanities, and of course he wouldn't have said the humanities, he was talking in the first instance about poetry, then more broadly about literature, make a contribution to happiness in cultivating a certain kind of feeling quality in our thinking and a certain ability to mix an analytic thinking with a more responsive um, human approach to things. That's enormously famous, but there's been a huge resurgence in thinking about contributions to happiness public benefits in the way of improvements of individual and collective happiness in recent years, in which Mill has pretty much disappeared. So you're looking at economists, um, behavioural economists especially, some psychologists who seem to have stepped away from the history of their own subjects. So what became part of the purpose of that chapter is putting him back in and trying to remind people that there was a very, very well-developed argument here, which still needs to be taken on board, Okay, and that might actually make for a richer and, and better a uh, calibrated argument than we have, if we forget him. And then the one other person who has a strong presence in the book is Arnold, who for years has figured in these debates as the kind of high cultural defender of the best that has been thought and said. Where I've used Arnold is really rather differently, and I suppose you could say I'm making a case for a modern Arnoldianism, um, but with a, a much more specific remit, which is that Arnold was... In effect, working as a bureaucrat in the Department of Education at the time that he was writing Culture on Anarchy, so he's the one who had most cause to think hard about how the humanities should respond to the pressure to be useful to society. And he had a very finely worked-out answer to that. So that's the bit of Arnold that interests me here.
1: So could you go into that a little bit, why why we should study the humanities? You have a, obviously a quite well-outlined argument already available um, in a series of lectures online, but we were wondering if you could... Sure, uh, I can give you the, the
0: summary version of it if you like. So what I've done is to um, to fish out, to provide a taxonomy of what seemed to me the four arguments that have been returned to you time and again and with good reason. So the first of the detailed lectures that you will hear talks about... It it offers a definition of what the humanities are and what it is that they do that's different, and the core description, the best I can get to something that unifies all of them, is that the humanities study the meaning-making practices of the culture, and that they do that in ways which place a necessary pressure on qualitative as well as quantitative thinking. Um, The second chapter looks at that old pressure from Adam Smith onwards to justify ourselves in terms of the usefulness you know, practical ends, what we do that is of immediate benefit to society. And it takes Arnold as a way of thinking about that debate. And the next of the lectures looks at um, the argument that comes out of John Stuart Mill, as I said, which is that the humanities have a contribution to make to our individual and collective happiness. We're really, in the end, and I don't think most... Philosophers have a problem with this, though some politicians do. The collective happiness is just the sum of individual happiness. It's how many people you can put in the way of a fuller understanding of uh, life, the emotions, as well as reason, A, a better and deeper understanding of what reason is and what it can do for you in your life. The next of the arguments is that famous one which has become hugely important um, to the English arguments about the humanities in the last few years. So the argument that democracy needs the humanities because they teach us a range of ways of understanding what a society is, how human beings work and live together, what the underpinning values are, what we mean by justice, what the good, what the human good is in ways that go beyond simple economic benefits to uh, to societies um, I put quite a lot of pressure on that argument, but I think if that argument of all arguments can't take a bit of scrutiny, then it's in trouble, because that's really what it says that, so we need to do it for ourselves, including that argument okay. and then finally I turn to the history of arguing for intrinsic value, now all the other arguments that I look at the idea that we are useful, though perhaps in ways that put pressure on Economists' standard ways of thinking about usefulness, that we contribute to happiness, that we are a force for good in the democracy. Something does remain of that argument, by the way. All of those arguments are what we might call consequentialist. They rest on the idea that we have consequences in the world. But none of those arguments really is enough by itself, because if you don't have alongside them a notion that the object that you're studying matters for its own sake then there will always be something that will do the job you're looking to do better or more directly, okay, more efficiently. Uh, Quite a lot of philosophy of value being used in that lecture, but I hope it's accessible enough for people to understand why I think that might be the better term to use.
1: So if we take for granted the value of other humanities disciplines, say art history or Mm -hmm. history, whatever, why should we study English specifically? Well I don't make that case, I deliberately
0: deprive myself of that job of defending myself, if you like, or my particular bit of work. As I said, I think the job of arguing for the humanities is really about trying to find what we have in common or what grouped together we do that is distinctive. It is really striking when you look at the history of arguing for the humanities how many prominent figures in it have come out of English. So John Guillory, for example, in the United States, Stephen Collini here. But most of those people, when you look at them, also have a much, you know, much wider interest and call on different kinds of skills. Um, beyond those of English. So I would like to see other people entering the debate. It would be great to see a musician in there. There are some very good historians in there. We need some more modern linguists in the frame. Okay, I think it would be good, good for the debate if we were represented more broadly across the humanities.
1: So even though you're a professor of English, you see that English is part of a family of humanities rather than... Yeah,
0: that's a good way of putting it. Yes, exactly that. And as I say, I can, tr- I can do my best to abstract out of or, or, or group together the arguments that are true for all of us, but I think it would be really good if people who were actually practicing, for example, musical aesthetic theories were able to enter the debate and say whether they think those arguments are true for them. The one argument that you will see isn't pushed very hard, for example, in what I'm looking at, is the argument that we make a contribution to aesthetic appreciations of the world, or that the things that we do are beautiful or have aesthetic value. I didn't want to make that argument because it seemed to me that it wasn't obviously true. A very large groupings within the humanities, for example, history is what my colleagues do when they look at the history of, you know, of a, a political debate or the history of nations or whatever. Is that aesthetic? I don't think it is primarily. So, I've tried not to pin it, not to pin these arguments on things that might captures some of what we do but are not only true of us and indeed where for example a scientist will tell you there are very strong aesthetic components to what a scientist does or discovers or describes so
1: in darwin's origin of species you could argue for that as a work of the humanities and of course it's a work of the sciences yeah. as well and yeah. um, can the humanities and sciences ever be reconciled in that way again
0: yeah the second of the lectures where i'm dealing with how we, how we can best describe ourselves and discriminate ourselves from other kinds of, of work within the university is trying cautiously to step over that old terrain of argument about two cultures and more recently three cultures where um, various people following on from Snow and Leavis have trying to, tried to describe a tripartite university humanities, social sciences, sciences and what I'm, what I'm really arguing there is as many people will agree with me I know have agreed already with this Um, will tell you that the antagonistic model of describing ourselves against others has not served us very well in the past. It produces a pretty quick caricaturing of what we and our supposed um, unlike partners.
1: And are there ways in which the study of the humanities has become even more relevant and important in our recent times, quite apart from the student protests in 2010?
0: I think we are under huge pressure across society, so so the we is all of us um, who work in any way with the public sector, to account for ourselves in terms that are, although they're much more cannily, um, intelligently broadly defined now than they were, are basically econometric. And I think there are very, very big problems with trying to do that. Once you try to capture the social benefit that the humanities create, you start to impose upon the people that that benefit has been done to and a burden of telling you that the benefit has been made and felt which to me turns us from a public beneficiary into a public, or public benefit giver into a public nuisance. We have to account for the good of what we do and there's no... I think there isn't any longer much credence, if there ever was, to the idea that government should hand out large amounts of funding and not ask us to say how we used it for the good. On the other hand, there comes a point at which your description of the good that you do starts to take up the time and expenditure of money that doing the good itself should be.
1: What would you say about the imbalance between funding for the humanities and the sciences? I think that imbalance
0: is necessary and right. It, it doesn't take as much money to do the work of the humanities as it does comparatively with the laboratory sciences, or the medicine. It seems to me, and I think it seems to many of my colleagues working in the humanities, that the best work in the humanities is done by individuals or very small groups thinking at their desk or in small rooms. and. Writing, thinking, discussing, writing. That's what we do. Being in the library, you know, searching on our computers for the information we need. But it doesn't take a huge infrastructure to do those things. And if you look at the size of the grants that are now being handed out for collaborative humanities work, it's clear that at that level, as at others, we're increasingly being modelled against the scale of uh, funding for the sciences. I'm not at all convinced that it will produce better work. I think in the end, you need a lot of small grants directed at individuals or small groups doing hard thinking in a room where they don't need big machines to do it. They may need a decent computer, a decent laptop, um, and a well-stocked library. What you do need, of course, is that the people in the university who are arguing for the humanities share of the budget understand what it is that they're arguing for. But it might help to know, for example, that the AHRC or RCUK Research Council's UK um, estimate that the humanities should have around 3% of the budget distributed to all subjects. That's tiny, I imagine that's even smaller than most students would guess if asked to guess.
1: And one final question, to young people studying humanities at the moment, it's difficult because firstly the funding is short, or that's the perception, that's the public perception, and secondly, in a time of economic distress we can feel, undergraduates, sixth formers can feel that perhaps they should be studying something more useful. What would you say to them?
0: There's a really interesting report, if people want to look at it, on Oxford University's website, which describes where our students go once they graduate. And the very interesting law is high up there, uh, management is high up there. A lot of students go on, of course, to further their study um, in areas that aren't just humanities-based, so we'll incorporate some economics or business training or whatever on top of it. So these things aren't antagonistic, but the more important message is that we train people in Thinking critically about language, about arguments, about um, expression, about how best to get one's point across and to think through a problem. I really think any student thinking about those issues could afford to start introducing themselves to the wider debate that's been going on, though, in the last several years about what the value of these things is. So it's you, you can track these through the reading lists that are attached to the website, but there are some very interesting debates out there about how best to defend what we do not just in the eyes of the world, but in your own eyes.